Welcome to Werewolf the Podcast, a retrospective podcast about Werewolf the Apocalypse. All right, welcome back to Werewolf the Podcast. I am your host, Josh Heath, and um, as you know, I'm the Chief Operations Officer of High Level Games, and before we get into the awesomeness that is this podcast, I'd like to tell you about a Kickstarter that we are running for our snowpunk setting book, Snowhaven. So if you're interested in Dungeons & Dragons or Pathfinder or Savage Worlds, go and check that on, out on Kickstarter today. Um, but today... We will be reviewing Rage Across Appalachia. But before we do that, I'd like to let our new co-host introduce themselves. Howdy, folks. I'm Becca. I've been a fan of Werewolf the Apocalypse since I began role-playing over 10 years ago. <clears throat> it holds a very special place in my heart, and I'm looking forward to someday running it for my boys over at uh, Twin Cities by Night. And the Twin Cities by Night folks have been huge fans of Werewolf the Podcast, and I am, in exchange, their friend and happy to co-promote anything that uh, Twin Cities by Night does and the different stories that they tell, which Ghoul Servitude, by the way, is creeping me out. Um, yeah. I've been listening to it at work, and that was a bad decision. Thankfully, oh, I had no. but I was like, <laughs> I was getting, like, really like uncomfortable in the last two episodes and was like i need to not listen to this at work ever again oh that's that's fair it was oh um the next one's coming out this friday the last one mm -hmm. and it's good it's really good chris does I, a great job i am looking forward to it this is the first of chris's games that i've actually listened to from the beginning and stayed current on just because i came in after he had finish so many of them mm -hmm. and he's mad at me because he's like you never finished my games man you don't like, <laughs> I'm, like I'm sure it's great i'm just bad about going back and listening to things from the beginning yeah i understand that's something that i have struggled with too fair enough all right so we are going to dive in and talk about this interesting book from 1995 um, it's again. It's Rage Across Appalachia. It was written by Jackie Casada, who uh, Jackie is um, uh, still a writer, a freelancer in the RPG industry, and I've interacted with her a very little bit. I know uh, recently she was running a GoFundMe. So if that's something you're interested in supporting writers that are having some difficulties, you could check that out. Um, if you look up GoFundMe and Jackie Casada, you'll probably be able to find that. 
the developer for this book was Bill Bridges, editor was Ethan Skemp, art director Richard Thomas. Rich, you did a good job with this on the art side. The cover art was done by Richard Kane Ferguson. Interior art has a whole bunch of people, um, including Steve Bryant, Mike Cheney, Matt Milber, James Crabtree, Jeff Holt, Steve Prescott, and of course, Joshua Gabriel Timbrook, who was a major artist um, at the time for all of these books. And that's pretty much the numbers on this book. And then the content, the idea behind it is that this is a book that's covering the U.S. region called Appalachia, which is generally situated, as it sounds, along the Appalachian Mountains, but the southern end of the Appalachian Mountain Range, which is Tennessee, um, Georgia, and a few of the other states that are in that area that people are going to be mad at me for not remembering which states those are. But that's basically the idea of the book, except it's also a changeling book, which is very confusing. And if you go and listen to the Walking Away from Ar- Walking Away from Arcadia episode that talks about this book, their take on it might be very different than ours, and that's totally okay because from a changeling perspective, there's some problems. So that said, Becca, can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts of the book and and what um, what you think overall about it? There is a lot that's covered in this book, and I really appreciate it. Uh, There's things that I haven't explored as a storyteller with Werewolf the Apocalypse that I see in this book, and it makes me go, ooh, I know players that would love it if I incorporated this kind of aspect of the game in my own games. Uh, Bottom line, I can completely see myself running a game, a series of games, in this setting. I think it's really interesting. I'd love to see how PCs would interact with it. Yeah. So you mentioned that there are a couple of things thematically that you'd be interested in running in Appalachia. What are those things that you're thinking about? So the big theme is, and this kind of, we'll talk about this later too when we talk about the characters, but I got the sense that this book's a lot focuses on the fractures within Guru society, and especially between the tribes, and even within the tribes themselves, you really see a lot of the fracturing between the Yuktena, and I think I didn't notice as much with the Wendigo. Um, yeah, there's very little information on the Wendigo in this area, and that's there's some tribal history, which maybe we can talk about in a couple of minutes about why that is. But. Okay. Uh, but those, those fractures there, that's kind of the thing that I would focus on with this book in this region is just seeing that, you know, Gaia is a whole place. And some people could take the idea that Green, the Green Nation should be whole, but it's not. And why is it not? So... I, that is a huge theme I would hit with this one. Yeah, I think that's really uh, a core theme here is that there are a, there's a lot of small tribal and pack issues that are mm-hmm. um, that are happening across the region, and that speaks to the um, the semi isolational elements of the Appalachian region itself. And I think that's a really interesting thing to dig into in this this type of place. 
Well, and for you, Josh, what did you think about the book overall? Overall, I was surprised that I liked it as much as I did because most of the people that I had asked about the book previously were very negative about it. And that said, most of them were very negative about it from a changeling perspective because those were the people that I had asked about it in particular. But there's a lot of really, there's a lot of human history. One, and I really want to emphasize this, and maybe we can move into the history as um, we talk about this, but there's actually well-presented Native American history in this book. And Mm -hmm. you can tell the writer knew enough to really dig in and tell that story effectively. I think there is a little bit too much emphasis on the human history there. Not that 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 that's bad. It's just this weird balance you've got to hit with how much human history in a region and how much supernatural history you layer in there. And there's just times where I'm like, I want more Garu stuff right now. This is really interesting. The Cherokee information is really interesting. The Native American elements beyond the Cherokee um, nation are interesting. But how does this tie into the Garu and the changings in a way that I'm going to be able to utilize it in a story? That was a little unclear at times. But overall, I thought the book was good. That's actually, you mentioned a really good point with that. That was something that... I started to get a little glossy-eyed when I was reading over the history because I personally don't know I have learned a lot of the Native American history, but exactly. I just wanted to hear more of the Guru, and that would have been nice to see, and as well as the Changeling, because I think it mentioned it kind of at the beginning, and they were sort of there through the history, but also not really, so you don't even... I didn't get the sense of the impact of the changelings in this area. Yeah, that was the that was the odd thing. And I think it's nineteen ninety five when this book came out. So Changeling I think had just been released. First edition Changeling. And okay. it first edition Changeling used a trading card game mechanic, which is very problematic. It was emblematic of the CCG rage at the time. It wasn't super well received. Second edition came along really quickly to fix that. Um, But it's kind of clear that the changing stuff came late. And it's interesting. But it also, it brings in a whole new layer of changelings. The Nunehe, who are connected to Native American myths, in particular to the Cherokee uh, myths of the little people, which again... Part of me is like, this is super cool, this is really interesting, but it's also really disconnected from the core changeling story. Mm-hmm. So I was like, this doesn't do the things you're hoping we... What do you hope we would do with this as players? That's the part that I don't know. Gotcha. And uh, gold star for good pronunciation. <laughs> I have no idea if that's how you would pronounce those changelings, but... Um... I'm going to give you a gold star anyways. Thanks. I, I will accept the gold star <laughs> and say other people have said that and I'm stealing their pronunciation and I'm hoping they were right. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure Cherokee friends of mine will be like, 
you are absolutely off base and I'll be like, I'm sorry. And I will try to do better next time. Very, very cool. So let's talk about the history. Let's talk about it a little bit more in the, in, insofar as what is the history here and why is it important um, to the region. Talking about the history a little bit, Appalachia is an interesting region of the country, of the United States, because it was the it was a frontier region for a very long time um, in early colonial history. It um, was strongly under Native American influence. The U.S., the British, and then the U.S. governments serially created different treaties to protect the um, the region for the Cherokee and other um, tribes. Um, but of course, because the U.S. government had a, an incredibly bad history of encroaching on those treaties, it never stuck. But Appalachia is it's an area of contrasts, I think is a good way of putting it. You've got poor Scots-Irish farmers, and you've got wealthy-ish Scots-Irish people, and you've got um, significant portions of Native American um, groups either connected to the tribe or not. You've also got African Americans that moved up from the Deep Mm -hmm. South after um, the end of slavery, and you've got all of these kind of intermixing layers um, to create a region that is in, it's got a lot of stereotypes in the kind of uh, uber culture of America. You know, this is the region of hillbillies and all of the kind of negative myths about people from Appalachia. It's also the home of Dolly Parton, who is one of the people that I absolutely love in the world. Um, she runs a book program for little children that gives a free book um, every month to kids until they're five, from birth to five years old. And she is an amazing human being, and I think exemplifies the um, the cultural attitude of Appalachia. You know, finding ways to build people up and support people and create really strong communities. Having that layered on with the werewolf elements makes a lot of sense. When you're talking about small cultural groups really caring and taking care of each other and trying really hard to fight against the mining that's happening in the region and the ecological like devastation that is happening because of those things it's a world of contrast in Appalachia so I think that's an interesting setup for a Garu story potentially Oh yeah, completely. And you know, it's it's not just the mining from what I've gathered in that history section. There's also forced. Um, that's not mm-hmm. the right term for it. Forestry? No. Forestry. That's for, yeah. But logging specifically. Right, lumbering, um, logging. I don't think can... I actually wrote the term down. Hmm. One of one way or another, it's about <laughs> taking trees and cutting them and ma- timbering, yes. timbering, and uh, also like the other the other big thing was the TVA Act. Yes, and I'm forgetting what it's called, but I know it's in Tennessee, 
and basically the Hoover Dam and the the issues that it caused with that. I'm really glad that they took the time to talk about that within the book. Um, yeah. Just kind of giving you those little extra, hey, here's a little bit of a spiritual um, guru feel to it as well. I totally lost my thought. That's all right. The cool thing about all of that is that it it's the layers of the Appalachian um, ideal. You know, um, the Smoky Mountains are a beautiful, semi-pristine region of the country. But before they became a national park, there was tons of interest in logging and mining all of that and just destroying all of it. This is one of the most beautiful regions of the United States. And there's tons of mineral wealth there. And I get it. But it's also, you've got to, from a, especially from a Gero perspective, you've got to balance how much extraction and how much just living and enjoying the beauty of Gaia are we, are we going to have here. And one of the fractoral things about the area that I like is you even, you have the people that would be for that, that are okay with trying to find a balance and trying to find a compromise. And then you have the people that are dead set against it. And then you kind of also have the people in between who, like sometimes they say yes, sometimes they say no to those sorts of things. And just the interesting layers you could be playing with that in your own campaign. Yep. And I think that's what's really cool about the characters that are presented in the book in the different chapters is you can, you can see some of that tension. There are NPCs that are really clearly like, you know what, logging and all this stuff isn't great, but if we do it controlled, we make some money, we survive better, that's good. And then there are the, the members of the nation that are like, no, none of this is good. Why are we letting this stuff happen? Mm-hmm. Oh, exactly. So, do you have any particular NPCs that you're excited about that you want to talk more about? Yes. So... Tying in the theme that I'm seeing with this particular book, Anubis Hillwalker, who is a silent strider. Um, his quote, I did not put the full thing here, but it goes, basically, the world is one place. It's Gaia's place. And he doesn't understand the divisions that are happening, but then he takes the time to remember about the worm. And... I can see him being used as a NPC that kind of comes in and tells stories because that's more of what the Silent Striders are doing. They're going in between the different cairns and spreading tales and news and that sort of thing. And you can just use him as a really good set piece, I think, to kind of help place that idea, that theme within a story and kind of see how the players choose to pick it up. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really, uh, this, it's an interesting point. Like, the silencers always have to be in that middle place. That's how the tribe is always, you know, sort of presented. Um, and I think Anubis is an interesting character for that because particularly in this space, he gets to have a much smaller territory than a lot of silent striders usually have. But there's a, so much division within that territory that it mm-hmm. still makes sense for him to fit that sort of role. Mm-hmm. I think, um, kind of speaking to that sort of thing, one of the interesting things about this group of NPCs is that most of them veer hard left away from the stereotypes of their tribes. 
So oh. instead of like diving really heavy into, you know, I'm a get a Fenris and I just beat everything up. There's nuance that is, has not been as present in some of the other rage cross books. And I think that speaks to uh, Jackie Casada's capability of looking really deeply into each, into people's motivations. She's mm-hmm. very good about saying, these are the things that motivate people. I think that's a very Appalachian ideal, like understanding people and understanding that food often motivates them. Um, Appalachian cooking is amazing. Um, and that's maybe a little bit of like a weird tangent. But anyway, it that sort of thing, like that this area is a, a series of contrasts and um, of nuances is something that the characters themselves reflect the, the world around them in. Um, mm-hmm. So, on that, I want to talk about Here's the Wind Goose Call, who is a Wendigo in this area. And instead of being the classic um, ice heart who is all about um, destroying um, white civilization because of everything that, um, that white people, colonizers and settlers, have done to Native Americans. Instead, he's the type of character that says, what can we do now together? What can we build together, respecting each other's history, but at the same time, finding common ground? Because without common ground, we will not be able to survive as people as a whole. And for a Wendigo to say that in this setting is amazing. And for a character with his particular background to say that... I think it it speaks really strongly to that idea of let's move away from the stereotype of the tribe. Very cool. Uh, that was a section that I had kind of briefly skimmed through. So I mean, just hearing you talk about him and a little bit more of his history, I definitely want to go back and read that a little bit closer. Yeah, I think all of the NPCs here are good, but it's it's hard when there's so much there's this is a 170 page book there's so much here it's dense and the type is like 10 point so it's (laughs) there's a lot oh there so is i could see a game going on in this for a long time there's a lot of material to work with yeah absolutely you had another npc that you kind of pulled out that you thought was interesting can you tell us a little bit about them Yes, Tarith is a quote-unquote shadow lord, uh, which I just, I, I loved because in their role-playing notes, put a little, they didn't quite hint at it right away, so you're like, wait, what's going on? Why are they hiding things? And then you find out that Tarith is actually a black spiral dancer trying to pose as a shadow lord because she doesn't want to, I believe it's a she, um, she doesn't want to go join that community, and and she really wants to be a part of the Guru Nation, but she knows that they would kill her for that. And I'm not sure how I would use her as an NPC, per se, maybe to just kind of pose the, hey, it, can someone who is worm-tainted be redeemed? It's possible. Depending on what you read and what you go with, but I think the majority of Guru Nation would say, no, that person needs to be put down. Yeah. I think that question about redemption is so... It's so central to the Garu story, 
and so many players are like immediately no kill them destroy them it's bad and it's like no there's a whole system of redemption within the Garu nation if a Garu that is that is descended from worm Garu wants to be redeemed why wouldn't you find a way to potentially allow her to do so of course that's why I'm a child of Gaia and not a get a Fenris but <laughs> you know that's another story uh, we should talk about that sometime. What <laughs> tribes are we? I, I'm actually a shadow lord, but, you know, <laughs> not a black spiral dancer one? I don't know. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, it would be a good conversation. Go ahead. It looks like you had also pulled out one more NPC. Yes. So this is my favorite NPC in the book. Um, and it's mostly because she does exactly the thing I was mentioning before. She looks at the stereotypes, and then she veers hard left, and then this one veers a little bit back to the right. So she's in this weird space where she's she plays two stereotypes, but you can tell she, the, the character does it for a reason. And her name is Hattie uh, Thunderwife, and she is the sept leader for a Child of Gaia sept, and she's an elderly woman. She's an elderly Appalachian woman, so there's a bit of the stereotype. Um, granny from um, the Beverly Hillbillies wouldn't be too far off for how this character is described and the image for her but her quote and I love this because this is such a child of Gaia quote but most people wouldn't think of it that way is sometimes the piece of Gaia has to be beaten into a person and you're just the woman to do it ah uh, that's perfect right yeah. Talk about, like, amazing quote that just encapsulates uh, the Garu mindset in a good way. Mm-hmm. Her, she's an elder, and she's old. Like, for a Garu, I think she's in her 90s. Oh, so wow. she is very well-aged. She has gone through tons of, like, fighting. And yet, like, she, and she's this angry kind of boil of, like, frustration and rage. But at the same time, she's loving. She tries to build community. She kind of embodies all of the things the child, uh, the children of Gaia try to embody in this, like, how do we build humanity up in a good way? How do we build our communities up so they're healthy? And yet she knows that deep inside, she's got this anger she can't control. And I'm just like, lady, I can see you in me and all that sort of, like, reflection of identity there. That really makes me like I I something about this character resonates so much that I'm going to absolutely utilize her at some point in the future. Awesome. Game. Special mention while we're talking about characters, there is a Kitsune in this uh, book. Did you notice that? Did you see I, him? I did, but I did not have a chance to read over the other changing breeds. I only skimmed that section, so I can't dive into it too deeply myself. Except for the Kitsune. So, for people that are familiar with the By Night Studios LARP rules, they decided to create an entire American group of werefoxes. And yes, I love them right, for that. The werefoxes, to me, are my favorite changing breed. I like foxes anyway. Oh. So I was like, yay! And then no wonder it, we're buddies. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then to see... A Kitsune here, I almost like exploded in excitement thinking it was an American fox. 
It is uh, not. It's a Japanese uh, gentleman who has settled in the region, which is fine. Okay. There are Chinese and, and Japanese um, immigrants, particularly, and other Asian immigrants in Appalachia. Oh, but yeah. I was still excited. I was like, this is the source of American Kitsune right here. <laughs> uh, so close. Close, but, you know, a little bit of tweaking could probably make it work, I think. Yeah, although it does make a lot of sense because with the railroads that came in through that area and bringing in a lot of Chinese immigrants to work on it, it makes sense that they would have a character that their kitsune would be of that kind of descent rather than an American one. Totally. Which is one of the other interesting things about Appalachia is, like, we mentioned this, but it is a... It is the American melting plot. Uh, Thank you. Uh, that is exactly what I was thinking. I'm glad we got the term. <laughs> it's like this region is that, and it's not like it's that super peacefully. There have been some major like problems in, throughout mm-hmm. history, but it also like when you're dirt, dirt poor, sometimes you're like, hey, we're dirt poor together. I've got carrots. You've got potatoes. Let's figure something out. Let's make rock soup. Exactly. So it's 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 one of the parts of the country that I I really like when I go there. I don't live there. I live fairly close to Appalachia, but I don't know. It's interesting to see it portrayed here because you can clearly tell the person that wrote it knows the culture and knows the nuances of it. Mm. So let's briefly, because this is a werewolf podcast, so we won't spend too much time on it. What did you think about the changeling parts of this? Oh, unfortunately, I didn't have time to read the changeling part. (laughs) I'm sorry. That's okay. All I saw was um, Adam over at Twin Cities. He loves changelings, and I realized this, this is probably the book for him. If he's going to read a werewolf book. But, yeah, yeah, I didn't get to read it too much into them. That's okay. I'll, I'll, like, talk about it just really briefly in that there's some cool changeling stuff here. Um, It's a weird changeling book, though. As we mentioned before, it doesn't quite fit the changeling, the core changeling concept super well. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think the NPCs are actually great. Like, for all the good things I'll say about the Garu NPCs, the Changeling NPCs here are stereotypes, and mm. that kind of frustrates me. There's literally a um, Native American who calls himself Chief something or other. I get it that Changelings are supposed to be like the embodiment of certain stories, mm-hmm. but I don't think just because they're embodiments of certain stories that they have to be embodiments of of stereotypical stories. So, okay. I don't know. I have some frustrations there, and I, I resonate with the changeling folks that have issues with it, but the werewolf stuff is good. Okay. Now, kind of moving on to the next session, section, mm-hmm. uh, what did you think about the adventure? I didn't get a chance to read that one either, but I have a feeling it's going to be good. So, I think this is a very good story. But it suffers from the same problem that every published White Wolf adventure I've seen up to this point suffers from. Okay. In, in that it, 
it is very it tells one story and you have to tell it this specific way instead of giving you like vignettes of things that you can add into a game which is what later white wolf stories do that i really like um but instead this one just says here's a story and kind of like presents all of the different elements to you as if they happen in order mm-hmm. and i love it if this was a book i'd be i would recommend it to every single person but as an adventure that i can run i'd have a lot of trouble with it because it does the things that we have both been talking about as story ideas it talks about the different divisions in the nation it like filters in vampires and changelings in really interesting ways it filters in some mages in really cool ways but ultimately if i can't tell the story as written i'm never going to be able to use 80 percent of this and I, uh, being a storyteller for as long as I have, can tell you that it's never going to go the way that they write it in the book. So it's like, yeah, this is great. But yeah, it would make a better story novel to read than probably an adventure path. Yeah, for sure. Now, you had mentioned some ideas that you had about uh, games that you might run. And one of the things I've done on previous episodes is say, here are three story hooks that I would use. Um, mostly, I've done that with the tribes and said, these are three stories that I would run with these tribes. But if you had um, three hooks that you would say, I would like to run this from this book, what would those be? The first thing that comes to my mind is there's the Yuxena Reservation. And they have the casino there as well. I'm trying to remember all the details, but there's kind of a conflict going between the two parts. Uh, One is, hey, do we do that compromise that their ancestors have done in the past? And the other is either we need to take a more active part in things and put our foot down or um, just not making any compromise. And I really that is the thing that I would do to players, even if they're not playing Yuktona specifically, but kind of introduce that element of, hey, even though that they're one tribe, they're of the same tribe, there's this fraction that's going on. And how would you handle that? Um, and that would, that would be how I would start that theme, probably. That would be really cool. The interesting thing with that, too, is if you layered in the two elements of the tribe kind of working against one another and maybe one member of a pack gets one set of like kind of orders or suggestions from an elder and then another member of a pack gets another like hey i think you should do x y and z and they're at cross purposes and yet in the same pack Mm -hmm. that negotiation would be really cool oh yeah no but you pointing that out i'm like oh that's, I want to run that game or play in that game because that would be so much fun to kind of be pushed around by Yuktena and right. be like, oh, what do I do? The drama. And the cool thing with that, too, is you could layer in some camp elements. You could have a bane tender on one side and some of the other camps of the um, of the um, Uktena. It could really be an interesting sort of, um, uh, I don't want to say like social conflict, but it would be an interesting layers that you could bring into that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Especially um, 
with kind of going into another story hook, you have the Hoover Dam that has been built and a lot of the Bane tenders within Yucatana did seal Banes within Gaia herself and they've probably been dug up or you can come up with something where something has recently changed, some Pentex subsidiary has come in and disturbed the ground and now you're having to deal with this or this one powerful bane, or maybe a couple of different beads in your orb, even going to the point of it slowly seeping out. There's there's several different things that you can kind of do with that and seeing the corruption play and seeing how your players interact with that. Oh yeah, I like that. Um, one one idea that I had with that is there's a um, there's a nuclear plant in the area as well. Yes. And um, it's a it's a clean nuclear plant, but okay. this is the world of darkness. So let's make it not a clean nuclear plant. And it could you could easily say that there's a bane tapped near the plant. It's not maybe not under the plant itself, though. Of course, you could do that, and then that could be a major problem. Mm-hmm. But it would be interesting if that was not um, Oktana territory, but was instead Fiana territory. or um, Child of Gaia territory. And the cool thing with that is then you say, okay, or even Bonar territory, which would be really nice. Um, You can say, hey, I don't know what to do with this. We don't, we don't, we stole this territory from you. We have this thing. We don't want to reach out to you because tribal enmity, Mm -hmm. but we have to. And then kind of all of that sort of negotiation around how do we fix this thing? Oh, and that ties in so perfectly with it, all the history building up in this area where you have the European European guru coming in and manifest destiny. This is our land. We can do this better than you. And then realizing, oh, we don't know what's going on because we don't know the history like mm-hmm. you do. Oh, that would be a really, I like pairing that with the Bonar or even Fiona, yeah. I like both of them. I think you could easily like tie threads into those three tribes in particular. That would be really fun for this area. What um, What would be the third hook that you would think about for this book? I would think about the BSD, personally. They, they've established it in the book where the Black Spiral Dancers are kind of pulling from the same kinfolk as either you, the Yuktena or the Fianna. I'm, I'm blanking on the details specifically. But maybe somehow focusing with your kinfolk on that and kind of seeing how corrosive their relationships with Black Spiral Dancers could be. Um, and more doing a doing more of a personal horror with that aspect of it rather than an ecological horror. Yeah, I, I really like that. So the angle that I might take with that, because I like the idea of the, the kind of the two different groups of kinfolk. And I also, I, I skimmed through the Black Spiral Dancer section of this. It's good. But again, it's a it's a big book with lots of content. Um, that said, what I would do is I would run a kinfolk game. Ooh where you are a small, maybe a family or a couple of, uh, maybe like an extended family of kinfolk who 
are both kinfolk of, of both of these different tribes, and you're figuring it out. You're figuring out, oh, wait, mm-hmm. those cousins are not the good cousins. And those cousins aren't the good cousins either. But shit, we've got to figure out which one okay. we're going to support, and the other side's going to get angry and maybe kill us if we don't do this right. Yes, that would be an awesome kinfolk game. That's usually not an aspect of werewolf that I think of very often, but it's so important. Yeah, I, it's one of the like underplayed areas, and I always try to dig into it with my games. I, I ran a um, um, werewolf game. It was actually a Changing Breeds game, but it was set in Maine and Maine and a little bit of Massachusetts. But I was like, the relationship of kinfolk are is way more important in some ways than just the interchanger relationships. So I, I always like to dig into that more if we can. Oh, yeah. I think, especially as someone who's run games for players that just kind of like, oh, I'm the big bad one, mm-hmm. or the big, the biggest, baddest person on the block, so everybody needs to listen to me. Um, having kinfolk play such an important part in a chronicle I think kind of helps humble everybody down a little bit. So, yep. yeah. The cool thing with that is when they turn around and they go, wait, who's the big bad guy in this? And I'm like, the kinfolk that you've been treating like crap this whole game. <laughs> yes. And, and their eyes are like, oh, no. How did we not see that? And I'm like, day one, I was like, the kinfolk that you don't like has tons of money and lots of connections. But, you know, let's just ignore those plot hooks. Yeah. And, and see them cry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, one thing I want to talk about real quick is the appendix of this book. Okay. Um, the fetishes and the, um, the word, the totems, in this section are really interesting. One of the things out of the story um, that I thought was cool is there's this artifact of mammoth in the region that is kind of getting passed around because it's cursed. And yet it's an incredibly powerful artifact. So, yeah, and I can picture this. I can picture Garrow being like, I'm going to hold on to this for the really short amount of time that does us good and then get rid of it because that curse was really bad. Um, There's a lot of cool stuff in this appendix like that that I think if you're looking for gifts and, uh, not gifts, but fetishes and totems that are different, this actually has some that are really different from any Garu book I've seen. One being Mammoth. Um, another one being The Grandfather, which is a mountain. It's not connected to Grandfather Thunder. It's a specific okay. mountain in this region. But I think that's pretty cool. Oh, okay. So as a totem, when you're saying that, I was like, oh, fetish? That's a mountain? I mean, maybe, but... It, it, in this case, a totem, but okay. that would be really cool. I don't think I want to think about what that would take, how much notice oh. that would take to activate. Oh, gosh. I mean, at that point, it's just a Karen, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> well, it, it, enough Gary worship it, and it becomes a uh, totem. So that's probably what happened. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Cool. So, overall... What sort of rating would you give this book? Um, maybe whiskey bottles. 
how many whiskey bottles do you think you'd give this book? Oh gosh, is I mean, when we start talking whiskey, is there enough whiskey bottles in the world? Uh, or in Kentucky? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Particularly for the Garu, there's never enough whiskey bottles. <laughs> oh, that could also be an interesting uh, plot point there. Ooh. But, yeah. Oh, dealing, yeah. Dealing with Sorry. alcoholism. Let, a, oh, rewinding back. <laughs> we, story up from alcoholism. I love that, that, like, that element could be a major problem. This area also has a lot of Prohibition era, like rum runners and moonshiners. Ooh. You could have a whole moonshine set up uh, that a vampire runs, but the moonshine actually has the ability to cause Garu to become um, drunk and potentially addicted. Mm-hmm. And there's an entire like cairn, potentially, or just a pack that is getting drunk and addicted to this vampire moonshine how do you deal with that situation oh wait one of them's a bsd also and it's <laughs> going to stab them on back that'd be a cool oh, game yeah that would be a really cool game i mean and that's that doesn't even have to be here you can always apply that to someplace else but i like that thematically here so if i was to put a whiskey rating on this how about we say out of five, out of five whiskey bottles. Okay. Probably four, four whiskey bottles. There's a lot of potential here, uh, mm. but by the sounds of the, the changeling interaction, like that probably could have been thought out a little bit more, but you can still, if you know the changeling system well enough, you can kind of take those ideas and incorporate it into this. But I, I think from a werewolf perspective, it's very, very strong. Yeah. I, I was going to lean towards three whiskey bottles, but you've sold me on it at least being three and a half whiskey bottles. <laughs> Probably that half being the one that finally knocks me out. Um, it's good. From a werewolf side of things, there's lots of cool stuff here. Like I said, and people that have, that have listened to the show a lot will know that I usually pan the NPCs in a book. And there have only been a couple books that I've said, these NPCs were really good. Um, this one, they got right, except till you get to the changelings. And that's the thing that just makes me kind of blow on the top of the bottle and go, well, I don't think I want to drink the rest of this. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. All right. So for folks that are listening, if you've enjoyed this new format, and I hope you do, and I hope that Becca comes back and joins us for many more episodes. Um, if you have any questions, concerns, as usual, you can find us at Podcast Werewolf on Twitter, Werewolf the Podcast on Facebook, and on our website, werewolfpodcast.com. And emails can be sent to josh at werewolfpodcast.com. Um, 